I'd love to share some of what I shared with some others recently about uh, John 9 and 10 and the Good Shepherd, but I just want to share a piece of it tonight, and I'll save that for another time. The Jews gathered around Jesus and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the anointed one, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them saying, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones to stone him. They wanted to suggest that their lack of faith their absence of belief was that they hadn't received enough teaching and explanation from, from Jesus, that he hadn't made himself clear enough. If you are the anointed one, the Messiah, tell us plainly. And he wanted to tell them that no, your lack of belief is not because you haven't been told plainly enough. Your lack of belief is because you're not a sheep. You don't belong to God, as he says two chapters earlier. And there can be a misconception inside of our minds that our lack of faith is always only due to an inadequacy of explanation. When in fact, our lack of faith may be caused by something completely else. It may be the fact that our heart is unbroken, unrepented, unyielded, and so no matter how much explanation comes, we're not going to believe. We're not going to be unseated from our unbelief. This is exactly what they were saying to him when he tells the story of Lazarus. Well, in his, in his parable, they didn't actually tell it to him, but he tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Do you remember? It says that when the rich man woke up and found himself in torment in hell, that he asked the Lord to please send Lazarus back to tell his brothers. And what he's trying to say, the Lord responds to the rich man and he says, no, they have Moses and the prophets. If they will not hear Moses and the prophets, they will not hear the one rise from the dead. And the rich man says, no, if someone rises from the dead, they will hear him. And what is the premise hidden in that statement? What is the assumption that the rich man has when he makes that statement? 
It's that unbelief is due to not enough fireworks on God's part. And if you just do something more exciting, more visible, more obvious, no doubt they would believe. And Jesus doesn't say, no, I'm not going to send Lazarus back from the dead. The Lord in this parable does not say, no, Lazarus won't go back from the dead. He says, they will not believe, though Lazarus rises from the dead. And it was to this same group of people that they said to him, show us a sign. If you are the Christ, give us a sign. And it was to these people that he said, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. If we read the four Gospels, would we agree that there's no sign given except the sign of Jonah? It's remarkable that he would even say that, right? How many of you remember when John the Baptist was confronted by the Pharisees in the same manner that they confront Jesus here in John 10? And they said to him, Are you the coming one? And he said, I am not. And they said, are you Elijah? And what did John the Baptist say to them? John the Baptist initially said to them, no. And then later, Jesus says to them, and if you're able to receive it, he is Elijah who was to come. Do you understand? So there's a kind of person for whom fulfillment just can't come. There's a kind of goat as, an opposed, as opposed to a sheep for whom promises just don't get answered, just don't get fulfilled. And it has nothing to do with insufficient miracles or fireworks. It has nothing to do with insufficient explanation or plainness of speech. It has nothing to do with a lack of experiential knowledge and encounter. Such a person can be standing in the presence of John the Baptist and for that person, he is not Elijah who is to come. But only for those who are willing to believe it. Think about that for a minute. That there are some promises that will come true for those who are willing to believe it and for the rest, they'll live and die having never seen anything happen. I don't want to be one of those people. I want to hear God's voice. I want to be set in motion by God's voice. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they what? They nod and say amen. They bah and say good night. No, they get up and they start going somewhere. I don't want, I don't want to be set at ease by the word of God. I don't want the Word of God just to produce an amen from me. If it's the Word of God, let it produce that. But I want to be set in motion by the Word of God. It says that Jesus went into Jericho in Mark 10. It says Jesus went into Jericho. Jesus went into Jericho. And as he left, a great crowd was following him. There's something about the shepherd when he comes into a city, into a place, into a family, into a church, 
and he begins to speak. He comes alone, but he leaves with a crowd. He leaves with sheep who are set in motion by his voice. Amen. I don't ever want to see the flock going over the horizon with the shepherd going before them, leading them triumphantly, and me be hearing their, their cries growing more and more distant as the anointing of God moves on and I'm left with the goats. And I say to the goats, do you think Elijah's coming? No. What about the Messiah? No. Anybody seen any signs? No. Anybody heard any words from God? No, said the goats. No, we missed it. Well, they don't even know they've missed it. I was with a group of young people down at my house. It must have been three or four, five months ago. And I asked them, how do you know that you have the Word of God? If you want to share it with somebody, how do you know you have the Word of God? And we puzzled over it a little bit. And, and I said, well, there's a scripture in the book of Hebrews that makes a pretty categorical, unequivocal statement about the Word of God that might be helpful. It says the Word of God is. And then it describes it. What does that scripture say? The Word of God is living and powerful. How do you know you have the Word of God? Well, do you have something living and powerful? Another translation says, moving and powerful. The Word of God is quick and powerful, another translation says. Do you feel something moving and powerful? Well, then you're hearing the, the shepherd, and you better move with that moving word if you're going to keep up with the flock. So many of us, we have a burden. We have a desire to help somebody. We even have this, this pressure that we were born with to be useful, to be profitable. Paul appeals to this when he talks in 1 Corinthians 13 about all the things that he could do that would profit nothing, right? That would be useless. So there's something inside of us. We want to be used by God. We want to be useful. We want to be profitable. We want our life to count. We want our days to tick by and something of, of substance and consequence to have resulted from it. We don't want to feel like we're a waste. We don't want to feel like we get to the end of a season, nor certainly to the end of our life, and we say, what, what was it all for? What was it all about? I don't get it. I don't know if I did, or I don't know if I found my purpose. I don't know if I missed it. I don't understand. We want to be useful. So we have concerns for people. We have, use, we have a desire to be useful. So how do we know how to speak to those people? How do we know how to help those people? Maybe it's someone as close to our heart as a spouse or our children or a close friend. How do we help them? Pick up the phone and call someone who's experienced and ask them, what do I do? 
It may be helpful to talk to somebody. But if that person needs help, there's only one who can help them, and it's not you. They don't really need you. They don't need your love. They don't need your encouragement. They need God. Jesus kind of summed it all up in John 6, didn't he? He said, the flesh profits nothing. For all of us who want to be profitable, who want to be useful, the flesh, the sum total of the flesh, flesh times flesh divided by flesh plus flesh, MC squared, flesh, flesh, it still equals a big zero. It's a, it's a nothing. It profits nothing. It doesn't get you any closer to your goal. What did he say after that or right before that? It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is a big zero. The problem is we don't know what's flesh and what's spirit. Think about it. We don't know what's flesh and what's spirit. We think that if it is spiritual language, then it's not the flesh. <laughs> flesh is doing yucky things in the world. But if it's if it's a spiritual concept, if it's quoting scripture, then it's not the flesh, it's the spirit. Now, I know that may seem silly to some, but I'm telling you there are people who think that way, even in this room. So I want to ask you, how do you know whether what you're about to offer in a conversation where you're trying to help somebody at the bedside of, of a relative who's passing away, in a meeting where you're standing up to preach or teach, how do you know it's flesh or spirit? Who wants to end up in the category that profits nothing? Oh, who? Who wants to end up in the category that gives life? How do you know that you're in the flesh or in the spirit? I want to ask you a scary question. How many of you have ever seen a so-called spirit-filled minister preach or teach where you walked away and said, that was nothing but flesh? I have. Was it a lack of scripture? Was he not making enough quotations from the epistles of Paul? How do you know? What percentage of the challenges that the Pharisees brought against Jesus, what percentage of the Pharisees' challenges were at least tacitly based on Scripture? Almost all of them. Almost all of them were based to, on an appeal to Scripture. Were they in the flesh or were they in the Spirit? Could they please God? What did Paul say? They who are in the flesh have a harder time pleasing God. They need more study. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So how do you know? You can quote scripture and still be in the flesh. Would you agree with that? Satan quoted scripture. Pharisees quoted scripture. I want to ask you, can you have a, a deep concern for somebody? and still be in the flesh. Hmm? Really? Like, 
a genuine concern, like someone's going to die and you don't want them to die, that kind of concern? Is it possible to have a concern for someone's well-being where you're, oh, I don't want you to die, about something that clear and still be in the flesh? Can you think of an example where that might have happened? Jesus said he's fixing to die. And his best friend Peter steps up, this will not be. Did he have a genuine concern for Jesus? An understandable concern for Jesus? Was he in the flesh or was he in the spirit? So how do you know? <laughs> this isn't a trick question. I really want to know because I don't think people get it. I want to make sure I get it. He said, Brother Robert said, if it's rooted in love, if it's not about you, it's solely about God and them. I'd agree that with that on one level, but wouldn't you say that a lot of things have been done in love that were also done in the flesh, like Peter? How do you know? So it's, you really have to be more specific in defining love, seems like, because there's a lot of human affection, right? I mean, how, how would you even know that you're in love? Given your body to be burned for somebody? Given all your possessions to the poor? If you're sitting in a meeting, you want to, you want to say something. Yeah. Okay, I agree with that. I feel like that's getting close. What did Jesus say when he stood up to preach in his hometown of Nazareth? Why did he say he was preaching? Huh? That's it. He took it, he took it went to the place in Isaiah where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach. Amen? Jesus was filled with God's Spirit. He was born of the Spirit, conceived of the Spirit. But in that moment, at that time, the Holy Spirit was upon him in an anointing to preach. And what I want to suggest to you is that you know that you're not in the flesh and you are in the spirit not simply by the data that you're trying to communicate but by the anointing and the witness of God's presence that you feel on your heart and we see this even in reverse we see people who are habitual fleshniks who all they can do is live in the flesh and when they come into proximity to the Spirit of God, the Spirit can even come on them. Remember the story of King Saul? He is rejected by God. He's a no good, good for nothing. And yet it says that when he went out to the, the region of Shiloh, to the oak and the well that was near Shiloh, he had sent one group of soldiers after another to go kill David. And... 
they would get as far as the oak that is at Shiloh, and there was such an atmosphere of saturated consecration and praise and faith in that region because of the school of the prophets that the Spirit of God would come on them and the soldiers couldn't fulfill the task which they had been ordered to do by the king. So finally the king is so frustrated, he gets up and he goes out there to do it himself. Well, what happens when he gets there? He comes as close as the oak that is at Shiloh, just like all the rest, and it says the Spirit of God came on him. And he didn't kill David after all. Don't we see the same thing with Balaam? Balaam is a jerk. He's a good for nothing. He's separated from God's people. He's living by himself and all he really cares about is money. And he, he's, he's led by his own lusts because when Balak comes to him, he goes up there in the first place. He should have never gone. But when he gets up there, oh, he is responsive to the anointing. The gifts and callings of God are without repentance. And if you've got a gift inside of you, there are times where God is going to put an anointing on you. And he starts speaking. You cannot curse them, you know. I see a nation who, who do not mix themselves among the other nations who are separate. Now this isn't because of his virtue. This isn't because of his character. This isn't because of his theology. This is because he knows how to yield when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him to preach or to prophesy or to move in a gift of the Spirit. Now I'm going to say something that may startle you. There are people who are less godly in their character, who are more responsive to the anointing than you are. And their responsiveness does not sanction them before God, just like Balaam's didn't. But we don't want one or the other. We want both. We want to be godly. We want to be consecrated. We want to be righteous before we want to be gifted. We want to be obedient. We want to be humble. We want to be broken. But we don't want to just sit around like so many cogs or slip into modes of the Baptists or the Mennonites or any form of Christianity that is devoid of anointing. We need the anointing. What is the root of the word Christian? Christ means anointed one. Christians mean anointed ones. You're not a Christian unless you're anointed. You may be aspiring to be a Christian. You may be committed to becoming a Christian. But you're not a Christian unless there is an anointing in your life. And an anointing is what, it's, it's what brings revelation. Not just to give or to speak, but to hear and to receive. How many of you remember when Sister Amanda spoke prophetically recently and she talked about how she was teaching her children the history of the church and she saw how there were these great men of God at different times in history and the, the majority of the church did not receive them. And she asked her kids, what was the problem? That when these men of God had revelation, a new step, a new faith what was the problem why didn't people receive him why did they kill them stone them saw them in two between the altar and the temple why did they do these things 
And they concluded that they had an anointed word, but they didn't have an anointed response. Anointing is for hearing as well as for speaking. Do you understand? John makes this clear, doesn't he? He says you have no need for man to teach you. You don't need the flesh that profits nothing. Why? Because you have an anointing that teaches you all things. He wasn't saying that all of them were individually called to be anointed teachers in the church, was he? He was saying, you don't need human thinking, human reasoning, because you know the feeling, the witness, the power, the conviction, the revelation of the anointing. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach. Hallelujah. So you can be filled with the Spirit. But does the Spirit come upon you and anoint you for the tasks that are put before you? How do we yield to that? How do we know it's the anointing? I believe that the anointing has to work by love. That that sincere burden of love. And what is the kind of love that we're talking about? It's God's burden for this person, not mine. It's God's heart for this person, not mine. It's Jesus' sacrifice for this person, not mine. The man for whom Christ died, not the man that I died for. So I believe that faith works by love and, and, and the gifts of the Spirit and the anointing and the Holy Spirit is released through faith. So there's got to be a genuine love. But it's not the kind of love that says, I know what people need, so I'm going to do this my way. It's the kind of love that says, God, I don't know what people need. Please, I want to do it your way. In 1 John, John says, whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. So there's, not, there's no dichotomy between doing God's will, obeying his voice, his word, and loving people. You don't ever say, I want to speak the truth to them, but I love them too much. Because whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God, has truly been perfected. The kind of love that casts out all fear starts with keeping his word and saying, God, I don't know how to love. I told Jesus I loved him before the crucifixion and I forsook him like all the rest. I tried to express my love when he said he was going to die and he told me to get behind him and that I was a Satan. But Lord, I want your love to be shed abroad in my heart. How? Through the Holy Spirit, through the anointing. The anointing wants to come on you just like it came on Saul. But it doesn't want to come on a corrupt vessel like Saul. It wants to come on someone who is sanctified, who is humble. Thank you, Jesus, who is righteous. I want you to close your eyes and pray with me and think the anointing wants to fall on you. He does not want an individual Christ only. He wants the body of the anointed one. He wants the oil to run all over the body as from Aaron's beard over the shoulders all over the body down to the hem. Do you believe that God 
has and wants an anointing to fall on you. Do you believe that? What does Peter say in 1 Peter 4? He speaks about the manifold grace of God in verse 10. He says, be hospitable, be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received a special gift. And what is the gift? Ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit in multiple manifestations. As each one has received a special gift, employ it. You got an employee under your control. You think that God is the one responsible. But the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. He has put a talent in your hands. And you decide whether you're going to bury it in the backyard or whether you're going to find the anointing to give it and invest it and multiply it according to his will. He says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it. You've got unemployed gifts lurking around, loafing about in your life like a bunch of people slouching on unemployment. So are your gifts if you are not employing them for the service of his body, for the edification of your brothers and sisters, for reaching out for those who do not have what you have received. Thank you, Jesus. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. When you employ your gifts, you function in gifts in service to your brothers and sisters. Whoever speaks is to do so as one speaking the very utterances of God. I am forbidden to give you my opinion. I am forbidden to entertain you. I am forbidden to put you to sleep. I am commanded to speak what I have received from God as if it were God's word to you. And for me to do anything else makes me a hypocrite. You see, the world wants you to accustom yourself. The church world wants preachers and teachers to accustom themselves to leaning on anything and everything except the anointing. They want you to do anything but become transparent to the anointing. It is a vulnerable thing to step out of your comfort zone and say, use me, God. It is a vulnerable thing. It is not easy. It takes ripping that head covering off. It takes stepping out into a realm where you're not in control and you can't forecast what's about to happen because you're not behind the wheel. God is. So nobody likes that vulnerability. So they learn to make up for it with developed mannerisms. And one will smile a lot and be head nodding. <sighs> and he has developed the, the notion that to be a minister, he's got to be encouraging. You don't need to encourage anybody. The only encouragement that's going to do anybody any good is the Holy Spirit. All you need to do is be transparent to the Spirit. 
The other is going to really get his facts right. Make sure he has every line lined out. And he's going to make sure that his facts are strong and persuasive and he's going to be the intellectual. But it does not say we have no need for any man to teach us because we have super intelligence. It says we have no need for super intelligence to teach us because we have an anointing. The anointing is kind of like starting a boat motor. You have something and you want to, you want to share it. And if you sit there and look at that boat motor and talk to it, pray to it, beg it, rub it, it's not going to happen. There's some engagement on your part that has to start. You grab the cord and you give it a pull. You participate. Now, is your hope that the strength of your arm will be the only power in this motor the whole time you're out on the lake? Is that what you're hoping for? <laughs> not me. That's what oars are for. But you got this motor and you want it to, to propel you. But you got to participate. People want to sit there and pray with their hands. Oh, God, just give me the anointing. He's never going to do it. You got to get up and, and, and yield to God. What did Paul say in Romans 12? Having then gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us, let us ponder and think about them. Huh? What did he say? Having then gifts that differ, let us pray God uses them. No, that's not what he said either. He said, let us use them. I have some employees who have been without a job for way too many meetings, way too many conversations, way too many prayer times, way too many work days, but my unemployed crowd is going to work. We're going to do God's will. We're not going to do it in our own strength, but we're going to step up to the plate just like Peter did when he took his stand with the twelve and said, men and brethren, and I know the Holy Ghost fell. It's the same way with this motor. You pull it and he goes, boom. I felt something. Amen. Praise the Lord. Some people will spend their whole teaching going blunt, blunt, blunt. Did you feel anything? Yeah. Heard a little blunt of the Spirit a couple times. Amen. That's not what we want. <clears throat> we don't know how God's going to start this thing. We don't know the vein or the movement of His Spirit. No scripture is a private interpretation, but the holy men of old, they wrote as they were moved upon by the Spirit. So I'm not here to tell God what I need Him to do for me in order to make my message more powerful. I just want to go with Him. So you pull something, and you hear a blump, and you go, oh, it invigorates you. You say, I'm going to yield to that. I'm going to go there and see what happens. Is the Lord leading me? Have your way, God, in Jesus' name. Lord, if that be you, I'll step out on the water. Amen. And what you want is for the Lord to turn that motor over and an internal combustion to start carrying you. Let him decide the speed. Let him decide the gear. Let him decide the, the direction. But you need to know that the Holy Ghost is carrying you. And if you can't get there, you need to pray. You need to pray until you're so sick of the flesh, until you're so disgusted with even the thought of the flesh that you're not going to go there. You're willing to stop ten times while you're speaking. You're willing to, to say, I missed it, but you're not willing 
to go where the flesh tells you to go. You're not willing to press through in the flesh. You want the anointing of God's grace to carry this in his own way. Amen. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, he got carried away. And is that something that you would like to do on a regular basis? Hear people say, well, he was real, he got carried away. But the holy men of old would have never written the scripture if they hadn't gotten carried away. You say, I'm not that kind of person. Fine. You can't be anointed. Because the word of God is not stodgy and pedantic. It's quick and powerful. You have got to put yourself in a yielded position, in neutral, where you say, God, however you want, gentle, roar like a lion, sing like a bird, whatever you want of me, God, your way, amen. I am not going to throttle in the sense of limit how you want to carry me. I want you to get carried away. I want you to talk to somebody about the truth and ponder it all you need to and pray over it all you need to until when you begin to speak it, there is a motor of energizing anointing turning over in your heart. And it's not something that you're producing. It's something that is being imposed and produced on you. Do you understand? I'm not that kind of person. Well, you're going to leave your purpose unemployed. You're going to leave your gifts unemployed. And before you know it, you're going to be unemployed. Because God needs people who can get carried away. We're not carried away enough. We're not. I never have felt convicted. Oh God, I got carried away in my worship. I, we're not carried away enough. I'll, I'll, I'll confess something to you. I worship more freely by myself in my office or my room than I do in the congregation. And I say that to my shame in part. But we also have to create an altar of faith for other people's sacrifices, don't we? We have to become children, like he was saying. We have to let God have his way. We're not going to become intellectuals. We're a bunch of, we're a basket of deadheads when that happens. We have got to be anointed. And that's the only thing that matters. God, I want to be more carried away. I want to be more carried away in my prayer. I want to be more carried away in my worship. I want to be more carried away in my excitement and my joy over what you're speaking and what you're doing. I want to be carried away in my thoughts. I want your Holy Spirit to carry me away in my words, what to say and how to say it. Hallelujah. You didn't get the Holy Ghost and start speaking in tongues so that you could check a box. God invited you across that threshold so that you would know what it felt like not to control your speech. And now he wants you to yield to him and not control your speech, but let him control your speech. Paul wrote the Ephesians in the sixth chapter. He says, pray for me, pray for me that utterance may be given me whenever I open my mouth that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. The Apostle Paul, the man who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament and performed miracles, he was writing to a church he had founded and said, would y'all please pray for me? I've been preaching for decades and I don't want to lose the ability to get carried away by God. 
pray for me that when I open my mouth, God will have his oracle spoken. God will have his utterance heard. The sheep will hear his voice and not mine. That's what he was saying to the Corinthians. He said, when I was with you, I was in weakness, in fear, and much trembling, so that your faith would not rest in the strength of man, but in the power of God. It was as if Paul was saying, if I had been strong and intelligent and got it together, you might have started emulating and worshiping me. You might have started using me as your Holy Ghost substitute. But you knew I was as dependent as you were. I needed God. I needed the anointing to come through. And I wasn't about to do anything else. Men are too afraid of being weak in the presence of God. Therefore, God will never come through and make them powerful for his purpose. In order to augment that weakness, in order to cover for that weakness, we develop mannerisms. God doesn't want mannerisms. It's like putting a poncho on in the rain and then begging God to get you wet. Your mannerisms are a substitute for the anointing. God, I want to take it off. I want to be vulnerable. If you'll be okay with being weak in his presence, he might be okay with anointing that which is fully committed to him. And the Lord said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Then Paul speaks and says, Therefore, most gladly will I rather glory in my weakness that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And that's also, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not with plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and power. The demonstration of the spirit of power is not incompatible with weakness, but it is incompatible with human strength. We need to pray for a new level of being carried away, of being led by God. The anointing is not being heavy. That's just another mannerism. The anointing is not furrowing your brow, brow and being ugly. That's just ugly. The anointing is not a deep voice. It's not a loud voice. It can speak in a whisper. It can speak in a shout. Jesus lifted his voice and cried aloud. And he whispered to Mary, it is I. The anointing is however God wants to move where human beings aren't in control, but his grace is having its way. The anointing is not being super intelligent. It's not being super encouraging as the world has described that to us. It's being carried along by the Holy Spirit. Some of the most powerful anointings that I have ever felt, where I felt like I couldn't bear it, I was whispering. I was talking to someone so quietly that on one occasion I remember them saying, I'm feeling the Holy Spirit very strong, but could you speak up? It's not the same when you're speaking to 600 people like tonight. 
But the most important thing is I don't decide. We don't decide. God, forgive us for ever trying to decide. All we have to do is put our sail up and say, you're the wind. I'm your sail. Go where you want to go. Amen. I want to get carried along. Peter said in, in Acts 2, he said, the kings and rulers of the earth, he prayed and said, oh Lord, the kings and rulers of the earth took their stand against your anointed one. Amen. The kings and rulers of the earth are not intimidated by the churches today. They are troubled by an anointing. They are troubled by people who will be carried along. Jezebel cannot coexist with Elijah. It's just not going to happen. Somebody is going to be off their game the whole time. Amen. Let it be Jezebel. The kings of the earth are made uncomfortable by a church and a people that it can, can yield to the anointing. They're not, uncomfortable by super, they're not made uncomfortable by superintelligence or human strength. You can have an anointing in your prayer where your prayer ceases to be, God, I need you to do this and that and the other thing, which may be appropriate, but he begins to make intercession through you with groanings too deep for words. And you don't even know why you're praying, but an anointing can come on your prayer. When I feel an anointing on my prayer, I can't be groveling. I don't know about you, but the groveling spirit never works with the anointing for me. Something rises in my heart that says, oh God, you got a purpose. Oh God, you got a plan. Oh, would you please, Lord? My face is turned toward him. My arms are turned toward him. I feel this energizing of faith. If I'm down, I don't feel anything. Never. Amen. You may need to weep. You may need to mourn. You may need to repent. But that is just tearing something down. When your prayer starts rolling over and the engine starts turning, it's when you turn out of yourself and you start thinking about God and his purpose. Thank you, Jesus. And then he starts anointing you. Hallelujah. You can be anointed in your prayer. You can be anointed in your service. We have to stay within the grace of God in order to be anointed in our service. Amen. We cannot live beyond the bounds of his grace. He says, we have, having then gifts that differ according to the measure of grace that is given to us, let us use them. If you try to use your gifts according to Brother Daniel's measure, you're going to get all mixed up. If you try to serve according to Brother Blake's measure, you're not going to be able to do the same thing. He has a measure of grace and he has a measure of gifts. You have a measure of gifts and you have a measure of grace. And your package goes together. And it's humility to know your limits. But if, if you would let God, there is a grace and an anointing that can come on your service, no matter where it is, where you feel God speaking to you, where you feel God energizing you, where you feel joy, you're working as unto the Lord, and you've got to limit yourself to His grace. You get outside of His grace, it's nobody's fault but yours. There can be an anointing in your conversation. How many of you remember when it's where it says, and those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, just talking together, and the Lord listened. And a book of remembrance was written. He ties your name in the book of remembrance to conversation time with your brothers and sisters. God can move. And it doesn't mean you have to be all heavy. Oh, we're going to have a spiritual anointed conversation. Uh, that's, 
the one guaranteed way to kill anything. Uh, you're never going to feel the anointing. You can laugh, you can relax, you can enjoy each other's company, and then maybe God will start to move according to his will. It happens. It doesn't just randomly happen. It doesn't just happen once in a blue moon. It happens. It's a reality for some of us. I'm serious. You can be anointed in your testimony. You say, how can I be anointed with my testimony? Well, I don't believe you can be if it's all about you. It can't, you're not going to feel what you want to feel when you're sacrificing to the God of self. So whether you're talking about your failures or your successes or your aspirations or your revelations, it's not about you. So if you are the center, you're not going to feel what you want to feel in your testimony. But if you can see what you're going through through the lens of God's purpose, through the lens of your care for somebody else, through the lens of how this might edify, encourage other people, or glorify God and give faith for his power, then your testimony can be anointed. And if you'll just yield to God with the intent of making, giving him glory, it will be anointed. And it's okay if you only hear a prunk, prunk, prunk. That's okay. Just keep going there. And someday it's going to turn into brum, 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 brum. Amen? You can be anointed when you share the truth. Doesn't mean that you're blowing hard and hyperventilating. and you know, that, That's not it. But you can, you can, in your spirit, sometimes if you're with visitors, you're just under, praying under your breath. It says that if they hear you speak in tongues, they'll think you're mad. So presumably that's not a good thing. Just praying under your breath or sometimes just in your heart. Give me an anointing. Give me a grace. In Jesus' name, give me a grace. Amen. And, and it's not, okay. no, no anointing, none. It's not going to happen. You've got to take your stand with the people of God. You've got to feel something rise up inside of you. Like Peter, take your stand with the 12. Don't be a runner. Don't hide. But you'll feel the grace of God. Where when you start to speak things, you're as surprised as your hearer, as your listener is. I never thought of that before. The first step toward being anointed is being dissatisfied with the flesh. The next step is saying, I'm okay with getting carried away. The next step is pulling the cord and waiting for the first, first rollover of the engine. And go there until it turns into a roar. Amen. Hallelujah. As the Lord has been challenging us tonight... I kept thinking of something that I heard a brother say who came to us a few years ago from an, organiz an organization, a church organization that claims to be spirit-filled. And he said one time he went to uh, a, an older minister and he said, how come it is that I don't really feel what I felt, the things that I felt when I first came to God? And unfortunately, the minister said to him something like, well, it just means you're growing up. You know, you just don't feel the same things it, when you grow up that you felt when you were a child. And it's all right. It's just a sign of maturity. And oh, God, I, I just felt how opposite that is. What a lie that is that permeates the church today that says that vulnerability that you felt when you were born again, when you first learned to yield to the Holy Spirit, you're growing up now. It doesn't have to be that way anymore. It doesn't take that kind of humility anymore. It doesn't take that kind of felt need anymore. Now it can be more poised. Now it can be more put together. And it's just the opposite of what Jesus said when he was speaking to, to, to Peter 
in the last chapter of John. And he said, Peter, when you were young, you girded yourself. You, put, you were put together. You girded yourself and you walked where you wished. I looked that up one time and it says the Greek word literally means that you walked in such a way as to demonstrate that you were under your own power. Amen. But he says, but when you are older, when you mature, when you grow up, then another is going to come along and courage you up and carry you in a way that you would not have gone. Amen. And he said, he spoke this to Peter to indicate the death by which Peter would glorify God. If you want to glorify God, then the death is going to have to increase. We're going to have to yield all the more. That word carry, there's the same word where it talks about the prophets of old were carried. It's the same word where it says that the ship was driven by the storm. It indicates that the wind has got to fill your sails in such a way that you're not in control of the direction anymore. You're just yielding to the power moving upon you. Almost every place in the, in the New Testament it's translated as carry. But there's one place where it's translated differently. And it's in Acts chapter 2. When it says, and when they were all together in one place and in one accord, suddenly there filled the room the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And it means the same thing. It's a carrying wind of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And I just thank God that growing up does not mean that we feel less. It does not mean that we humble ourselves less. Amen. But don't you feel the call of God tonight to mature, to grow up in the spirit.